Thank you, Lois. I'd like to ask uh, you to turn to our text for this morning, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. And uh, we're wrapping up a sermon series here this week uh, where we've been looking at generosity the last number of weeks, and uh, this is the final sermon in that series. So 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12, and this is what the Apostle John uh, writes to the believers back then, as well as to us as believers today. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God has so loved us, let us also love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, then God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, one of the fun things about being a parent is discovering the different traits or characteristics that you each give to your kids. Uh, For instance, while Levi has my hazel eyes, small ears, and oppressively extroverted personality, it's clear that Sarah gave her, I mean, it's true, right? You all know me at this point. It's clear that Sarah gave him her high metabolism, her slender build, and her elite athletic potential. Titus, on the other hand, our 10-month-old, is just the opposite. While he seems to have Sarah's ears, blue eyes, and reserved, more thoughtful personality, for me, he's received a more characteristically Dutch, uncoordinated build. He doesn't know it yet, but he's never going to be very good at dancing or basketball. And it's fun seeing that, right? It's fun seeing the family resemblance, the various traits that you give to your kids and the ways that they end up looking and acting like you as they grow up. Well, in the same way, in this passage this morning, the Apostle John writes that as Christians, we ought to resemble our parent as well. We ought to look like our father. As God's children, we ought to resemble and look like him. And there's many ways that we do that as Christians, right? There's many traits or characteristics that God passes down to us, if you will, as his children. But John makes the case in this passage here that there's one trait, one characteristic that should exceed and stand above all the rest. That's because as children of God, John says, one of the most important ways that we are to resemble our father is with our love. That's what pastor and biblical theologian John Stott says in, uh, says in his commentary on this passage. He writes about these verses, For the loveless Christian to profess to know God and to have been born of God is like claiming to be intimate with a foreigner whose language we cannot speak, or to have been born of parents whom we do not in any way resemble. It is to fail to manifest the nature of him whom we claim as our father and our friend. And then he writes this, Love is as much a sign of Christian authenticity as is righteousness. Love is as much a sign of Christian authenticity 
as is righteousness. I could preach an entire sermon series just on that, right? But I think he's right. I think that's what John is saying in this passage, that as Christians, one of the undeniable traits that we have to have as children of our Father is love. After all, that word love or some form of it occurs 14 times in these six verses here. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright, at least a bit tongue-in-cheek, writes, no need to ask then what the subject matter is here. In fact, we seem to be at the very heart of this letter because this is what John most wants to say. Everything that have gone before, has gone before leads up to this. Everything that follows in the last chapter solidifies it and rounds it off. Love is what John has on his mind. In other words, that's what this whole passage is about. In fact, some commentators make the case that that's really what this entire letter is about. It's about love. And yet, and this is important, John's not using that word love the way that we often do today. You see, the Christian conception of love, the Christian understanding or definition of love is very unique, and it's also quite precise. It's narrow, in a sense. And it's not the same thing that our broader culture is talking about when we talk about love in our society these days. And so as we wrap up this sermon series on generosity, as we, as we talk one more time about God's generosity towards us as his people, and then our own resulting generosity towards others, and then imagine a bit of what that could look like for us together here at Ivanrest, that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about that generous love that we have received from God, what that generous love really is or looks like, and then how we as Christians can be generous with that love towards others too. And so let's start there with some definitions and distinctions when it comes to love. Uh, You see, despite its reputation, love, at least the Christian understanding of love, isn't the way that our culture often talks about it. It's not just some, I guess, shallow, ethereal brightness that we feel towards all people in all places at all times. There are some in our culture who try to make love sound that way, like it's some sort of bland sentimentality that we just need to have for other people, but that's not really what love looks like. Instead, contrary to its reputation, love at least true love, the way that Scripture talks about love, is extremely hard. You see, Scripture talks about love as as kind of the highest of all the virtues. It's the most significant, compelling, and important thing that we can pursue in our lives. It's the goal of life, the cornerstone of every good, healthy relationship, and the beating heart of humanity as a whole. If you have love, life is worth living. And if you don't, or at least think that you don't, then it's hard sometimes to keep going. Love is crucial, it's critical, it's key, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Instead, love is hard, it's complex, to a degree it's mysterious, and as a result it's not for the faint of heart. Just listen to the way that the Apostle Paul describes love in his famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then he goes on for a bit about a few other things. I'm going to skip through that. And he concludes this chapter by saying, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We're used to that passage, right? If you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard it, right? But Paul doesn't make love sound easy there, does he? I mean, he says love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it doesn't get angry easily, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It never fails. I don't know that I've lived up to that standard of love even this morning already. It's a high bar. It's not just a walk in the park. And it's not the way that our culture talks about or feels about love. It's not the kind of sentimentality that we often mistake for love. Instead, like anything truly worth doing, truly loving is actually one of the hardest things that we can do. Just ask anyone who's ever loved and lost. Ask anyone who's ever tried to love the unlovable. Ask anyone who's loved someone else only to have that love chewed up and spit back in their face. Love is terribly good, yes. In fact, rightly done, it's the most and highest good. But sometimes love can also just be downright terrible. And why is that? Why is love this two-sided coin? Why the equal but opposite nature of it? Why is it both medicine and pain wrapped up together in one and the same bittersweet pill? Well, to get at that this morning, I think we need to take a step back for a moment from this text and talk about a couple of Greek words. And I promise it's not just the nerd in me that wants to do this. It'll hopefully pay off. You see, in the original Greek the New Testament uh, was written in, there were actually four main words for love, four terms that each described a different kind or form of love. First, there was storge. Storge is love as empathy, affection, or fondness. It's the kind of love that a parent naturally has for their child. Uh, And so it's been rightly described as familial love. It's the kind of love that exists between family members. Next up, there's philia, which is brotherly love or friendship. It's the kind of love that close friends have for each other. It's also what the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, is named for and supposedly famous for, at least if you're not playing the Eagles on Sunday. Next up is eros, which is romantic or sexual love. Eros describes desire, attraction, and the feeling of being in love with someone. And then finally, there's agape. Of all those Greek words for love, agape stands out. It's different than the other forms. First of all, agape is an entirely selfless form of love. While all those other three forms of love, storge, philia, and eros, all at least to a degree are two-way roads, they expect or require something 
of the person that you love in order to keep them going. Agape doesn't. Instead, it is a self-denying form of love. It's a love that seeks only the good of the other, not the good of the self. In other words, it's a self-sacrificial love that's willing to do whatever it takes to love another person, no matter the cost, and with no expectation of anything in return. It's also the form of love, by the way, that keeps all those other forms of love in check, because without agape, storge, philia, and eros, all have a tendency to sort of spin out of control. They can become selfish, self-absorbed, and even idolatrous, but with agape's selflessness at their center... They stay in check. They stay in balance, healthy, the way they're supposed to be. And as a result, it's agape that has been rightly described as the Christian form of love, the kind of love that we are called to as Christian believers. In fact, C.S. Lewis has written an entire book on this called The Four Loves, where he looks at these four different kinds of love and their relationship with each other. And in essence, what he says in that book is that it's agape's selfless, self-denying, self-sacrificial love that we are called to cultivate and live out as Christian believers. That's why love can be so difficult, though. That's why it can be so dangerous. That's why it can be so terribly good, but also sometimes so terrible. Because love like that, true love, agape love, is actually incredibly vulnerable. Again, like I said, agape is selfless, right? It's self-denying. It's self-sacrificial. And so as a result, it's a love that opens itself up defenseless to another. Agape is a love that takes off all your armor, your hard outer shell, and entirely gives yourself to another person. It's a love that says, here I am, all of me, no conditions, no prerequisites, no strings attached. I offer myself fully and completely to you. And that's hard, right? It's hard to love like that. That's risky. It's dangerous. It's hard to be that vulnerable. It's hard to be that open. It's hard to be that selfless. When love like that is received, it's great, right? When you offer yourself completely to someone else and they receive that love and maybe even reciprocate it, it's wonderful. But when that kind of love, when you open yourself up that way and you offer it to someone and it's not received, it's incredibly painful. It's soul-crushing. And yet that's the kind of love that John is referring to here in this passage. That's the kind of love that he is calling us to as Christians. He's calling us to selfless love, self-denying love, self-sacrificial love. He's calling us to agape. And he's calling us to that because that's the kind of love that we have first received from God. You see, like John says earlier in this letter, that's how we know what love is. We know what love is, true love, what it looks like, how it operates, because we have first experienced that kind of love from God. As John writes here in verse 7, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. In the original Greek, it's for agape comes from God. He's the source of love. He's the fountainhead of love. He's the one who defines it so that we know what it looks like. A little later on, he continues, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How do we know what love is? How do we know what it looks like? We know what love is because God first demonstrated that love to us. That's how we know what true love looks like. That's how we're able to recognize it. And that's how we know how to live it out and offer that kind of love to others too. Because we ourselves have first received it from God. And so that's how we're called to love too. As Christians, we are called to offer the same kind of generous, self-denying, self-sacrificial love to others that we have first received from God. After all, like we said at the start, that's part of how we live as God's children, right? That's part of how we resemble him as our father. That's part of how people know that we are his people. We have to love like he loved us. In other words, as believers, love is non-negotiable for us. That's more or less what John is saying here. That's what he means when he writes things like, whoever does not love God, or whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Or just a couple verses later, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In other words, as Christians, we have to be loving people. There's simply no other way for us to operate. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Love is what we're called to. That's what John is saying here. And part of that, part of why love is such a crucial, critical, non-negotiable aspect for the Christian community, and this is something that John sort of nods to in the last few verses of this passage, is because there's a watching world out there that is watching us. They're watching us to see what this God we worship is like. They're watching us to see if the things that we say about him are true, and they're watching us to see whether we match up and live out those things or not. In other words, our love as Christians is undeniably evangelistic, and when we don't love well as God's people, it does harm to God's reputation, it does harm to the gospel, and it also does harm to our witness as believers. As N.T. Wright puts it in his commentary on this passage, the Christian faith grows directly out of and must directly express the belief that in Jesus the Messiah, the one true God has revealed himself to be love incarnate. And those who hold this faith and embrace it as the means of their own hope and life must themselves reveal the self-same fact before the watching world. Love incarnate must be the badge that the Christian community wears, the sign not only of who they are, but of who their God is. How does the song go? They'll know we are Christians by our love. It's the identifier of who we are and whose we are. And so part of why we're called to love as Christians is because it's part of our witness. It's part of how people come to know the gospel. It's part of how people come to know God. They come to know him through our love as his people. And I can think of few better reasons to love than that. It witnesses to our faith. And yet John does actually give us a better reason to love here, and that's because he says that the biggest reason that we are called to love as Christians is because we ourselves have first received that love. We've received the love of the creator and God of the universe. Just think about that for a second. The God who formed planets, 
The God who took stars and flung them into the night sky. The God who created life itself loves you. He loves me. And he calls us his children. With a love like that, how can we not love others, right? That's the kind of love that we've received, and so we need to give that kind of love as well. I don't remember exactly where I heard this, but um, somewhere on this kind of topic, I remember hearing or reading something somewhere uh, that maybe the best image for Christians, if you were to come up with an image for what Christians ought to be or look like, maybe the best image is a channel. You know what a channel is, right? Not a TV channel, but a, a water channel. A channel is a a ditch that's dug in order to connect two bodies of water. So sometimes it's dug in order to facilitate transportation, right? Uh, So that boats can more easily get from one body to another by using the channel. Sometimes, though, it's for irrigation purposes. Maybe it's for flooding purposes to make sure that rainwater has a place to go. But anyway, a channel is a canal. It's a waterway, a passageway that allows water to flow from one place to another. But it's not meant to just hold water. Right? It's not meant to just have water sit in it and stagnate. Instead, it's meant to move that water from place to place. And whoever it was, whether it was a pastor preaching a sermon I listened to, or if it was an author I read somewhere in a book, what they were saying was, that's what we as Christians are supposed to look like too. We are to be channels, not of water, but of God's love. He pours it out on us and he fills us up with his love, but we're not meant to just hold and hang on to it so that it stagnates in us. Instead, God pours out his love on us. It flows through us and out to others, the rest of the world. That's what we're called to as God's people. And that's how all this love talk relates to generosity this morning. I'm going to bring it back to the, to the theme of this sermon series, right? Because we've been talking about generosity the last five weeks, and so how does all of this relate back to it? We see generosity is how we channel God's love. It's the method for how we channel God's love. The motive for our generosity is that love that we have received, but the way that we live out that love is through our generosity, The what that flows through us is God's love, but the how, how we do that is generosity. And like we've talked about in this series, we do that in a multitude of ways, right? Sometimes we do it tangibly with physical things like money or material gifts, things that we can touch and see. Sometimes we do it sacrificially with our time, which in today's day and age might actually be more valuable than money itself. It's kind of, it's becoming easier and easier to write a check for something, right? It's becoming harder and harder to show up and take time out of our busy schedules in order to sacrificially donate that. Sometimes it's with our gifts and our talents, putting them to use for God, his kingdom, and others. But again, we do all of this because we have first received it. We do it because God first loved us. We do it because in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, God has given us his love, and so now we give that love to others. And that, of course, brings us to the gospel this morning. After all, that's what John points to as the source and basis of our love as Christians. That's the foundation that he says we build all the rest of this on. That's ultimately what makes all of our love as Christians possible in the first place. It all comes back to and starts with the gospel. 
I think N.T. Wright sums this up well in his commentary on this passage when he writes, follow the argument through. Basic to everything that John writes here in verses 7 through 10 is the fact that God's love is revealed precisely in sending Jesus, his son, into the world to be the sacrifice that would atone for our sins. Standing at the foot of the cross, gazing on the length to which God's love has gone for us, it's impossible not to sense the power and possibilities within that love. This is the force that has changed the world and could still change the world if only the followers of Jesus would really come on board with it. And he's right. That is the love that changed the world. It's the love that changed us, too. And it's the love that will also change others if only we will show it to them. And that's what we've been encouraging uh, ourselves to do as a congregation through this whole series. We set up an email account uh, all about this, right? Generosity at IvanRustCRC.org. And what we're doing is we're looking for ideas that we can live out that love, that generosity that God has poured out on us so that we can pour it out on others. Um, we've already got a number of ideas that have come into this email account, and uh, even though this is the last sermon in this series, continue to send them. We've put together a little team to actually read through those different ideas and see which ones we think have potential for us as a community uh, to pursue. But what we're really looking for are ways for us uh, to imagine together how we can live out and pour out the generous love that God has given us on others, whether those are here, right, in our own church community or beyond. So send those ideas to us and together. Let's live out this incredible love that God has poured on us. Let's receive it, let it flow through us, and pour it out on others too. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this day. This day when we get to come together and worship you, Lord. Every day is a gift from you. You fill every day with innumerable blessings. They are all signs and examples and evidence of your love towards us. You pour that love out on us so freely, God. Help us to love others like you have loved us. Let us take the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness that you have given us the love that you have given us, and be channels of it as we live that way with those that you have placed around us. And we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.